Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if we don't know each other, my name is Wes Carpenter. I'm the missions pastor here at GBC. Um, we've got a few people standing in the back. I know it's unnerving, but there are a few seats in the front. I know you've got to do like the walk of, you know, that. But, you know, I sit in the front and whatever. Uh, but uh, so there's some empty seats. But if not, standing is great too. Uh, you'll join me in standing. Um, so I'm our missions pastor. And uh, the reason I'm preaching is uh, Wes and our elders are uh, on their way back from their annual elder retreat. And uh, from everything I've heard, it was a really good time. And we've got awesome elders who are unified and care for our church really well as they lead and shepherd us. Um, Y'all might know that a, a part of my job is to raise up teams of lay people that take uh, responsibility for all the ministry partnerships that we have and help steward all of the, the giving that our church does to outside ministries. Y'all might not know that a part of my job is trying to determine which church plants and which church planters we might support. And the way that works is, you know, a church is getting off the ground and we'll say, hey, we'll give you X thousands of dollars for the first three years. And, you know, they don't have people tithing and so they, they need money. And so we, we want to see good disciple-making churches grow. And so uh, we want to support church plants. And so uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because it's always a question of, are there churches that we could and should be supporting? And I want to present a question to you today. Um, how you would think about a particular church planter and a church plant? So say we've got a pastor, say we've got a guy that uh, by all accounts he's sincere, uh, he's well-trained, he's, he's well-equipped, he can, he can raise support beyond, you know, any, any one area of support. He can, he can do what needs to be done uh, to plant churches, and, and this guy in particular, say he's had some success, but say he goes out and plants a church, and, and this is a, an actual story from hindsight. He goes out and he plants a church, and it doesn't take very long for this church that this solid church planter plants for them to lack unity, for them to not be doing a very good job of actually building up people who are new in the faith. I mean, that's something that church plants should thrive at, and this one's not doing that. Uh, but sad, but, but what happens to this church plant is like many churches today, uh, they get wrapped up in fuzzy sexual ethics. There are gender issues they are defining marriage not by God's standards, but by the culture around them. And so I have this question, you should ask this question, what do we do with a church planter like that? What do we do with a church plant like that? Do we cut and run? Are we done? Uh, the temptation is very much there to be like, man, you're not, you're not figuring it out. Let's, let's be done with it. You don't need the money of GBC. You don't need, you don't need support. That would be the wrong answer. Uh, because I'm actually talking about a church plant uh, in a city called Corinth a long time ago. And the church planter's name is Paul. He's the greatest church planter in all of human history, right? Paul was so good at teaching the Bible that he actually added to it. And he was supposed to do that. Okay, so we are going to continue on in 2 Corinthians. We finished 1 Corinthians last week. Uh, we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians today, and we're just going to look at the first two verses of 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 to get a little bit of a context for this situation that I sort of just described. <laughs> Verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, 
with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So first of all, Paul claims to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. What is an apostle? This question is very important because we're asking, what is uh, an apostle in terms of the office of apostle? This is someone that is called by Jesus, sent out from him to be his messenger, right? So this is not just the general idea of somebody who goes out and talks about Jesus. This is someone sent out by Jesus to be his messenger. An apostle speaks on behalf of God in equal authority with the Old Testament scriptures, okay? It's a serious office. It's a very important role. What qualifies someone to be an apostle? Scripture gives us two basic qualifications. Qualification number one, they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, right? In Acts chapter one, when all the disciples are gathered and they're trying to figure out who to replace Judas with, they say, we need to find somebody who's actually seen Jesus. That's important. We know that from Acts chapter 9 that Paul, on his way to Damascus, sees Jesus in the flesh. It's an an incredible experience, but Paul sees the resurrected Christ. What's the second qualification of an apostle? Someone who holds this particular role in the early church. It is someone who is called by Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 3, we know that Jesus appoints the 12 and he calls them, names them apostles. Once again, in Acts chapter 9, Jesus tells Ananias, if you don't know the story, Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus says, keep going to Damascus even though you're blind. Go to this guy named Ananias. Go to his house. And what Jesus tells Ananias is, Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So what we say about this particular role is that it is extraordinary and temporary. The reason that matters, and this is our quick fun fact out of the start of this sermon, the reason that matters is that people today claim to be apostles. Let me be clear. The term apostle means sent out ones. So in that sense, we are all apostles. We are people sent out by Jesus to proclaim his kingdom come. We should all be sent ones on mission. But that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about apostle. We're talking about somebody claiming to speak on behalf of God with the authority of Scripture. So if you come across someone who claims to be an apostle of this sort, claims to speak on behalf of God with the authority of Scripture, what I want you to do is I want you to put your hand firmly on the wheel And I want you to make a real wide turn. And I want you to steer very clear of this person because they are a heretic. You need to know that, okay? So Paul, he claims to be an apostle. And he doubles down. He says what? He says, I am an apostle, how? By the will of God. Why is he so assertive? He's assertive because the Corinthians, some in the Corinthian church, wanted proof that Paul was the real deal. They doubted him. Why did they doubt him? He wasn't as flashy as some of the false teachers. Why did they doubt him? He suffered. How can a messenger of Jesus suffer? But Paul, when he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he is defending himself and he is asserting his role. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church at Corinth and all the saints in the whole of Achaia. 
What does this mean? This means he's speaking to Christians. His audience is church members of the local church in Corinth and all the other local churches in Achaia. Achaia is southern Greece, basically. And look, to be a saint means that you are set apart for God from the world. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. That's who Paul is addressing. Now, at this point, you've got to be asking yourself, now, we're, we're starting 2 Corinthians. Hasn't Paul already sent these people a letter? Like, what's the deal here? And the answer is actually he's sent them more than just one letter. We know of four different letters. Now, this is the most confusing part of the sermon, so I'm going to do my best, and I need you all to do your best. Okay, there are four letters that Paul sends to the Corinthians. Letter number one, he sends, and we don't know what it is. We don't know the exact contents, but he sends them a letter. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, okay? The, the, the church, they get his letter, they, they try to figure some things out. They actually communicate with Paul, and they send Paul a letter. That's not, a, that's not in my four count. This is getting confusing. But um, they send Paul a letter. They reveal that they are way off base on a lot of things. Paul is like, man, this church that I planted in Corinth is not in a good way. They are missing the main thing. So what does Paul do? He sends letter number two. What is letter number two? It is what we know of as 1 Corinthians. Okay? That letter, 1 Corinthians, is basically a rebuke to this church saying, y'all are missing it on a number of factors. So that's 1 Corinthians. Letter number three, we would call the tearful and severe letter that is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2. Okay? So letter number three, Paul has uh, sent them 1 Corinthians. They haven't responded well. He sends them another letter that's tearful and emotional, and, and they're still not where they ought to be. And so then Paul sends a fourth letter, and letter number four, as y'all might guess, is what we know of as 2 Corinthians. Okay, so that, that's kind of confusing. And the main thing I want you to take away from that is this. Paul was invested in these people, right? I didn't even talk about the times that he went to go visit them and he changed his plans to be with them. The point is, is Paul would send them letter after letter. He was in it with them. Why does he care about these people? What explains his persistence? He's dialed in with them over time, despite the fact that they're, they're not figuring it all out. I think Paul believes two things. The first thing he believes is that the, there is power in the gospel to change lives. Why do I say that? If 1 Corinthians, that the book that we just studied, is this big rebuke, y'all need to fix some things. What we actually end up getting to see in 2 Corinthians is Paul celebrating the repentance of some of the people in the church, right? Some of the people repented. Now, also in 2 Corinthians, there's an admonishment to some people who are still rebellious in the church. There's an encouragement in 2 Corinthians to take up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. There's teaching about Paul's ministry. But the point is this. If 2 Corinthians is acknowledging some people's repentance, what Paul is hoping for is that the power of the gospel actually leads to life change. Y'all, that should give us hope. That should give us hope for ourselves. That should give us hope for the people around us that keep disappointing us. We've got to believe that people can change. We've got to hope that for ourselves. And y'all, the great hope is that when you say, man, does the gospel change a life? 
you can say resoundingly yes by looking in the mirror, right? That is what Paul believes. We should believe it too. The second thing I think he thinks is that his job is to build up the church, not to tear the church down. He knows that it is hard work. So, uh, something that I, I've observed, I think, uh, in, in the contemporary times that we live in is that it has become very popular to tear down institutions, to tear down tradition, to deconstruct things, and to be like, look at me, I'm, I'm calling, calling all the shots on why that thing is wrong. Uh, my example for that is Prince Harry of the royal family wrote a book uh, that came out. Apparently, a lot of people have read it. I haven't read it, but I've read about it. And if what I have read is true, he basically like burns all sorts of bridges, right? And he's basically in this book blaming the institution of the House of Windsor for all of his problems. And in some ways, he's seen as heroic for this. Like he's, he's calling out this broken institution. Look at him. Y'all, it's common today. It's also very easy. It's really easy to tear stuff down. It's really hard to build. Paul is a builder. Be like Paul. And look, what I'm not saying is that when something is wrong, we don't call it out, right? Paul calls out wrongs, but he also acknowledges what is working. And we'll get to see some of that in 2 Corinthians. We are a mixed bag, just like the church in Corinth is a mixed bag. Look, here at Grace Bible Church, there are things that are worthy of critique. There are also things that are worthy of celebrating. The church has always been a mixed bag. Our Savior has not. That's why we're still here. So it's harder to build, but that should be our aim. That is Paul's aim. So that's the context for this letter of 2 Corinthians. And then we get into verse 2 which is this greeting or salutation. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this simple phrase, we have embedded three things. In this phrase, we have a play on words, a political statement, and a profound reality. What are those three things? First, the play on words. Grace to you and peace. What Paul has done here is actually pretty neat. First of all, the word grace in Greek is very similar to the word greetings or hello. So he's taken a very similar word to what would have been common and put the word grace right in there in his, in his salutation. The second thing he does is he says peace, which is a nod to Hebrew culture. What did Hebrews do to greet each other? They'd say shalom, right? Hebrew Shalom is peace. In Greek, he uses a different word, but he says grace instead of greetings, which is a nod to Greek culture. And then he says peace, which is a nod to Hebrew culture. He creates a uniquely Christian way to greet people. I think that's pretty neat. I think it should instruct us. The political statement. What is that? He says these things, grace to you and peace, they come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that this does is if grace and peace come from God our Father and Jesus, this affirms the deity of Christ. This says that Jesus is God. 
But I say that it is a political statement because he claims Jesus as Lord. This is the era of ancient Rome. What would people have said? What would people have thought in first century Roman civilization? They would have said, Hail Caesar. Caesar would have been the Lord of the realm, not to Paul. Paul claims the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We don't have a Caesar today, but do we have people that would like people or groups that would like our allegiance to their lordship? Yes, we do. There are political ideas and movements, good ones and bad ones, that would like our allegiance There are corporate rules and regulations and standards for career advancement that would like our allegiance. There are norms in our social circles that we should adhere to for polite company, right? Let's adhere to that. Where do we place our lordship? And this is an important thing because there is no neutral ground. We will assume lordship of someone or something. And the question is, uh, who is our Lord? And what you need to know is that Jesus Christ's Lordship, it exists. It's not a question, right? Jesus is alive. Jesus is the King. Jesus is sitting on the throne, full stop. That defines reality. And we can either acknowledge it or ignore it. Paul says this in um, uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says this about the lordship of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I ask you this question, who or what is your Lord? And You need to know that that question is asked of you every day, whether you realize it or not. Now, a comment I have on this is that broader culture and liberal churches get the lordship of Jesus totally wrong. A lot of people think that Jesus' whole message is, come just as you are, I affirm everything about you. Come just as you are. Be happy and well and follow this good teacher dude. And and they get part of it right, but they pervert the whole meaning. Because Jesus says, come just as you are. But what follows is, but you'll never be the same. That's what Jesus says. Come just as you are, but I'm going to make you new. And that matters. Because the supremacy of God's standards in the ordering of our lives will affect how we live our lives. Either his standards are supreme or somebody else's are. Jesus says, come to me. But he says, I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make you more like me. That is our hope. We shouldn't want to be the same. We should want to be like Jesus. So, there is a play on words. There is a political statement. What is this profound reality that I'm talking about? Grace to you and peace. First, grace. Grace is this thing that comes from God. What is it? It is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor from God. Right? In Ephesians chapter 2, we know that by grace we have been saved through faith. 
Our whole salvation is rooted in grace. What about those who have already repented of their sin? They've received God's grace. What what does that mean for them? It means for them, for us, for you, for me, we actually get the opposite of what we deserve. Not just something different from what we deserve, but the opposite of what we deserve. That's what God's grace is. So instead of condemnation, we receive acceptance. Instead of separation, we receive union. Instead of death, we receive life. What's this peace? I like it described this way. Peace is the outward blessing of social order and the inward blessing of a right relationship with God. The outward blessing of social order and the inward blessing of a right relationship with God. Where there was once enmity between us and God, there is now belonging and acceptance. It is a well-being that comes from resting in God's sovereignty and mercy. Okay, where's the profound thing? Where's the big deal? Here's the kicker for the whole sermon. All right, if you've been asleep, wake up. Paul says grace to you. Why does he say it that way? Something you need to know about this phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase verbatim exists in eight of the 13 letters that Paul writes. Okay, so in most of the letters, he uses that exact phrase to get started. In the other five letters, he says grace and peace in some other way, right? Grace is something that he mentions at the very beginning and the very end of every single one of his letters. So this must be important. Why does he do this? What's the point here? Look, if someone says, if I come up to you and I say, hey, grace to you from God, what am I saying? I'm saying, hey, right now, from here on out, I want you to experience grace. Now, I'm not saying anything about whether or not you've experienced it in the past. I'm saying, henceforth, grace for you. From this point onward, experience grace. Remember, Paul is speaking to Christians. He's not exhorting people to be saved. He's talking to people who already are. And he says, grace to you from here on out. What? should that mean for us? What does that tell us? What follows this phrase every time that Paul writes it? His letters. What are his letters? They are the living word of God. As an apostle of Jesus, Paul knows that what follows this salutation is the living, authoritative authoritative word of God. He's saying that in and through this hearing of the word of God that you're about to read in this letter, in this Grace is coming to you. This letter is a channel of God's grace. Look, you want to multiply grace and peace in your life, but you're already saved? Here's how you do it. The Word of God is how you experience grace and peace this side of salvation. Knowing Scripture, obeying its commands, adhering to the exhortations of God in His Word, This is an experience of God's grace in and of itself. And so when we talk about grace conceptually as unmerited, undeserved favor, God's word is unmerited, undeserved favor for the people of God. He doesn't have to reveal himself as fully as he has, and he did. We don't deserve it. 
It's grace. Do we treat it this way? Do we? Look, if grace from the cross breaks our chains and frees us from our slavery to sin, grace from God's Word will break into the rhythms of our life and give fullness to that freedom. Okay? So on the cross, when Jesus says to Telestai, it is finished, he breaks the chains of sin. That is grace. But in his living word, the truth that, that God's standards might invade our lives is a different kind of grace. And it gives us fullness to the freedom that Jesus paid for. That's important. Why is that important? Because I think far too often we think, man, the Bible says this or that, and I really ought to do it. And the reality is, is we get to do it. That's God's grace, is that we get to live in the standards that He has given us. Some people says it's a got to, not a, wait, it's a get to, not a got to. Right? Said another way, it's a get to, not an ought to. So in 2 Corinthians, you know, weeks, months, years from now, when we get to the later chapters, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, turn and forgive those who have caused you pain. Is our mentality, man, I, I ought to do that? Or is it, man, I get to do that? And that's an experience of God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is going to say, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Are we going to say, man, I ought to, I ought to marry a Christian or I get to marry a Christian, or I get to remain single and avoid tethering myself to somebody I ought not to be tethered to. God's instruction is a grace to us. It's not a burden. It is a good thing. So we get to enjoy God through living in light of His Word. Now, what do we call this? Uh, often we call God's Word, the experience of living in light of it, an ordinary means of grace. Said one way, how do we fortify the things that we know to be true about our salvation? How do we enjoy the truth of who God is and who He calls us to be? We could call these things ordinary means of grace. Framed one way, it's Word, water, bread, and wine. An ordinary mean of grace, means of grace, meaning what we are looking for in our lives are not super special, super unusual spiritual experiences. They might seem common, but they are profound. Word. We teach the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We submit to the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. We pray the Word of God. Water. We get baptized. We paint a living picture of new life. Bread and wine. We celebrate communion. So just the way that the Word, the Word, here it is, the Word is an ordinary means of grace, so is communion. It's something that might seem common. We, we do it every once in a while, and it's something they do in the church. Don't miss how amazing it is that God gave us rhythms by which we might actually remember what is true. We might repeatedly reorient ourselves to the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Communion is a way that we will physically, tangibly remember the sacrifice of Jesus that first gives us grace, right? That is no small thing. That's an amazing thing. In a minute, 
uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. How that's going to work is uh, you're going to come row by row. You'll receive the bread and the cup and hold on to it. Take it back to your seat. We will partake together. Up in the balcony, y'all are in the Wild West. Row by row doesn't work. But they're in the back corners, and I trust y'all will all figure it out. You have the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Before we do this, before we do this, uh, I want us to silently and quietly spend a moment. Uh, If you need to repent of sin, you should repent of sin. Uh, If you need to spend some time thinking about the amazing grace of God, being thankful for that, appreciating His Word that is all the more powerful because of what He did on the cross, do that too. Remember, we celebrate communion. Um, When the musicians begin to play, that is when it will be time uh, to get up. But now, pray silently. Silently.